Welcome everyone to another episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. Your host Travis and John. John, how was that? Man, that was really good. We had David Zaboda on, um, physical therapist, uh, plant-based uh, coach, medicine. What'd you think, dude? That was a great conversation. I don't know anything about psychedelics or plant-based medicine. I always hear about it, um, but I don't. I didn't have very much knowledge on what it is or how it helps or. I didn't even know what microdosing was. I know the term, um, but I didn't understand like what an ayahuasca was, microdosing and whatnot. And today, David breaks it down for a very you know simple understanding of what it is and how it benefits people and whatnot. Uh, like John said, uh, David is a plant-based therapist. Also, him and his wife do plant-based therapy with microdosing and ayahuascas down in Mexico. And before you guys think that this episode is I kind of want to give like a, a a warning like this this episode isn't going to be like sharing experiences on how badass ayahuasca is and like right. all that stuff it's it's honestly more of an educational uh interview on how it can benefit you and the people that it helps and whatnot right john yeah and i mean it's talked about in the jiu-jitsu community yeah. so I, I definitely think it fits in this podcast um i'm sure people have heard it around the gym so yeah if you're someone like me and Travis, you're not very familiar with these terms or what it's about, this would be a good podcast for you to get some education on. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just it's enlightens people. It is something that goes on in the community. Um, we also do talk a lot about like physical therapy and how to improve your mobility and like make yourself more uh, less susceptible to injuries and how you can train around injuries and whatnot. That's like the first half of the episode. And then the second half of the episode, we dive into the plant-based medicine. So if all you want to hear is how to, you know, PT for jujitsu, that's going to be the first half. If you want to hear more about the plant-based side, that's going to be the second half. Um, I'll probably break it up with the ad in the middle to, to dive into the, to split them up, but it's, it's a great, great conversation. I learned a lot today, so it was, it was a lot of fun. So John, what was some of the other stuff that we covered real quick? Uh, you know, I think you hit it pretty much there. I'd also say we're kind of covering here, I guess uh, you consider it medicine for the body and the mind. It's just yeah. interesting. Uh, 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 it's I'm going to have to listen to this one again because that was a lot of information. Yeah. I definitely re- recommend it. Yeah, John said uh, a, a good little quote at the end after we got done. No, do no, it was it was at the very end, right? I don't I don't think that was uh, on the recording. Oh uh, no, the the it sounds like you're flow rolling with life. Just yeah, flow it. rolling with life. Yep. Yeah, yeah, trying out new things, letting it go, and moving on. Yeah, I think that's going to be the name of the episode: flow rolling with life. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, remember, guys, follow us on Instagram, elbows tight, elbows tight everywhere, YouTube. Uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes. Recommend us to a friend, five-star on Spotify. Uh, check out our sponsors down below. Check out all of David's links down below. He's in a he's going to link some good resources for you guys for plant-based medicine. And go follow him on Instagram, too, because he's going to go ahead and put out some resources on like general warm-ups to help with uh, jiu-jitsu that we don't do in jiu-jitsu warm-ups typically. So go check him out. He's got a lot of good information out there. So thank you guys so much for listening and watching at home and let us know what you guys think. Peace. Peace. Breaking news. Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right. They are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, The technology behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shape your signature beard look. Now you can finally use Manscaped products to make sure your drapes match your carpet. By going to manscaped.com and using the code ETP20 for 20% off and free shipping. Again, that's ETP20 
for 20% off and free shipping. It's time to tame your mane. No one likes a weird beard, so say goodbye to the stubble trouble with Manscaped's Pro Beard Kit. My wife hates when I have stubble. She actually, she's like, don't even kiss me. Trim that mustache. And same, th- same. Thanks, Man- Manscaped, for making it possible now. It all starts with the Beard Hedger. This thing is a juggernaut for fixing faces. First off, the cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 haircutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extras and add-ons. That's right. Face grooming doesn't need to be hard. Get 20 different beard lengths and just one guard. The Pro Beer Kit also comes with three free gifts. A beer brush, comb, and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress. So get 20% off in free shipping with the code ETP20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code ETP20. Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. Thanks, Manscaped, for sponsoring this episode. All right, David, how's it going today, man? What's up, guys? It's going pretty well, man. I'm actually really excited to record this now. I just recorded an episode yesterday. This is like my new like podcast studio setup. And I hung up more curtains and placed towels strategically around the room to sound dampen things. So let's see. Let's see how this goes. Yeah, yeah. We, we do the same thing. We... uh. We have a a bunch of stuff on the walls in here, and then recently I bought a backdrop hanger, and so we mm-hmm. have our sound blanket directly behind the camera to stop it from bouncing Smart. off the 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 doors. Because the first episode we did in in this new configuration, uh, I was like, I have to cut every piece of audio of someone not talking because it was just mm-hmm. like so bouncy, and it still yeah. is there a little bit. But um, I figured we just. I can edit it and make it sound a little bit better. So how's it feel to have a little podcast studio, though? Bro, it is legit here. So <laughs> to give like <laughs> to give a little background, like uh, my wife and I live in Mexico now, in Tulum, Mexico. We were supposed to move into this house over a year ago, and the construction just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And they didn't even tell us, like, hey, it's going to be delayed a year. That would be one thing. They told us, hey, it's going to be three months. And then two and a half months go by. And it's like, hey, it's going to be another three months. Mm-hmm. And that happened four times. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah, dude. So we moved literally with, within one neighborhood within Tulum. We moved four times because we would rent a spot for like a month thinking we would move in. And then we couldn't renew that like lease. And then we had to move out to some other place. It was, ah, it was an exercise in patience and embracing uncertainty. Um, but yes, it feels very good to have a desk and a chair that aren't going to move and I'm going to be able to sit down here every day. So it it feels good. It feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go any more into like your podcasting and, and what you do, uh, for a living and everything down in Mexico, let's go ahead and jump into who you are, how you got into jujitsu, your background, you know, you can be as elaborate or as quick as you want. Just give me mm-hmm. something I can grab onto afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, man. I, I like a question like that. Um, as we talk, you'll hear like, I'm all about people writing their own stories. So a question like this lets me rewrite it. Because if you asked me that a month ago, it'd be different. So mm-hmm. thank you. Um, let's see. So I'm a doctor of physical therapy, right? So I went to school. I went through four years of uh, college, three years of grad school. I became a doctor of physical therapy. By the time I was like 24, I was a doctor. And then I get out of school and I realize like my entire life has been structured to graduate with this degree. Now I have it and I realize I don't actually have any idea what I want to be doing. Um, 
which is a silly thing to recognize when you're $160,000 in debt from mm. grad school. Uh, so, so there's that. So I worked as a PT for a year in like a regular outpatient clinic. That was when I started training jujitsu down in Delaware. Shout out Riptide BJJ is my first academy. Um, and so I was training there and I had this idea to start like a side gig of taking care of jujitsu athletes because like it's an obvious market, right? Everyone's injured right. all the time. And so that was going to be just like a little side thing. But then COVID happened. My clinic got shut down. I got laid off. And I realized I never really wanted to go back to a clinic. So I was like, why don't I make this side gig just my job now? So that's what I've been doing for the last like three years or so is building like an online business from scratch of taking care of jujitsu athletes. And it's been an interesting journey because they teach you all the physical therapy things in PT school. And they don't teach you anything about business. Mm. So there's been lots of lessons. There's been lots of wasted money. There's been lots of, uh, you know, online mentorships and coaching and this and that to varying degrees of success. Um, and I mentioned a moment ago about kind of rewriting stories. So that's what I've been doing for like three years. And I'm actually coming to a point right now where I'm realizing that like I haven't been that successful with it. Like my clients are getting awesome results. Yes. But I almost have this resistance to marketing it and, and growing this business because it's really not what I want to be doing. So I'm kind of realizing like I, I, I care more about, I guess, taking care of people's like souls for lack of a better term than taking care of their bodies. So my wife and I do all of this work with plant medicine, which I'm sure we will get into. And uh, I've just kind of been recognizing that like that stuff it, it fuels me way more. Like I care so much more. I'm working with this, this veteran, this Canadian guy. We're getting him into microdosing in preparation to come do ayahuasca with us. We fucking changed this guy's life entirely in the last two months. That shit gets me going way more than like, Hey, let's work on your knee so that you can shoot a takedown without pain. Like that stuff's important. Yeah. But like, here's this guy who was suicidal and now he's really excited about life. And like that gets me going a little bit more. So I guess I'm just at a, at a point where I'm working on figuring out how to bring that shit to the jujitsu community. Um, so this is a great podcast to, uh, to be on right now, man. That's, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> I know that was I'm a long one to answer. I, 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 don't, I don't know if that's what you bargained for when you asked me that question, but there you go. No, but I'm trying to think like, uh, I could, I could see what you're talking about spiritually, but I could also think like, but you might need to be in good physical shape. So you have that totally. good spiritual shape. You know, because if you can't do the things you want to do, then it's going to affect how you feel inside. So Absolutely. I, I mean, they, they go the, hand in hand. Yeah, yeah that's they, they definitely go hand in hand. Even like the physical wellness, I, I, I would honestly say should come first. Like you'll never be spiritually or mentally well if you're not physically well either. Because I, I do believe like I believe in reincarnation. I believe we're more than this body. But like we're here on Earth right now and you have a physical body. And thank God, because that lets us train jujitsu. So let's take care of it. Um but we need the other pieces in place as well. So that's what I'm trying to figure out, trying to put all of that together in order to help people like employing everything that I care about and employing all of my gifts and abilities, not just the PT stuff. So before you got into the, the plant-based therapy, you were, like you mentioned, you obviously were, you thought you wanted to be a, a PT. What made you go that path? Like what was the calling the, in the first place to go to be a PT and specialize in like knees and want to help the jiu-jitsu yeah, yeah. community? Well, being a PT came about, I was in high school and I was, I, I, 
I used to be a fat, nerdy, shy, unathletic kid. Sounds like um, me every day, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us don't ever grow out of that, and that's okay. But um, so I, w- I was injured all the time, and I went and got physical therapy because I played football and I broke my leg, and I was in PT. And I was there. I was I was in treatment for so long that they offered me a job because they hired like high school students to make hot packs and clean the clinic and shit like that. And um, at that point in time, I wanted to be a chemist. Like I, my whole, my, I, I had a whole life plan. I was going to be a materials engineer for Under Armour. That was what I wanted to do when mm. I was like in eighth grade. But my mom made me take this job at a PT clinic. I didn't want to take it because the whole job was just talking to people all day. And here I am hosting a podcast and shit. So we see how well <laughs> how well that worked out. You should always listen to your mother. Like she's always. I was about to say, right about she looks everything. like she was right. <laughs> Oh, dude, she 100%. I didn't want anything to do with that job, and she, like, forced me to take it. So anyway, so I'm working there. I'm, like, kind of seeing people get better, right? Like, I hated PT when I was the patient, but then on the other end of it, I saw people come in. I saw the physical therapist, like, doing this evaluation. It was almost to me like a a detective. Like, you're putting, like, these puzzle pieces together, figuring out what the person needed, and you build a relationship with them, and you watch them get better and come back week after week, like, improving. So that... That really appealed to me. Um, I went to college actually as a chemistry major to start out with, though, because I figured I can be a chem major and I can go on to pursue chemistry or I can pursue physical therapy. If I went straight in as like exercise science, it shut down that path towards chemistry Mm. like grad school. However, one semester into college, chemistry lab was not fun anymore like I I realized I had more fun in the gym with my friends and like teaching people how to lift weights than I did in chem lab so I was like okay let's let's listen to this so I switched my major went into exercise science and then uh went into physical therapy after that yeah so interesting how life works out like that right like growing up I thought I wanted to be like a teacher and whatnot and then my uncle was a welder and uh, one day my my parents came over to me and they're like, hey, look, we can't put you through college or uh, anything. So either you need to like pick up a trade or you need to join the military. And I decided to do both. And it really like set me down a path of like, you know, like we have a I never thought I'd be on a jujitsu podcast, let alone be doing jujitsu and talk to some of the greatest people in the world. But it's all plays into, you know, where life takes you. And like sometimes you're like, where is, where is this going? You know what I mean? Kind of like this whole conversation. But, it's like, you know, it's kind of crazy how it just like takes off and then these these pathways open and then you find exactly what you want and you understand you're like, oh, man, you know, even though I didn't really like that, it's. I'm happy it happened because it led me to where I am now. Like it would, none of this would have happened if I didn't do that in the first place. Absolutely, man. I'm that's, that's life right there, dude. Like you, you can never anticipate where things are going. It would be boring if you knew exactly where it was going to end up. And, um, I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about this. I think it's, he's just referencing Taoism, but like when you're listening to music, like if you go watch a symphony, like they don't just play the first note and the last note, like no one would care. It's all about the entire process of getting there. And that's that's what life is, dude. So how did you get into jujitsu then? Like, how did that come to uh, inspire? Mostly Joe Rogan, to be honest. Like, <laughs> there you go. Not even not even kidding, dude. I'm one of those people. I listened to enough Joe Rogan. He always talked about it. And I was like, all right, let's try this. I had a, a friend named Ryan in uh, in grad school who was the man is obsessed with Joe Rogan. Like, it, it, it might not be healthy. And um he was just always talking about it to me. So I started listening to the podcast and then I heard enough about it and I was like, 
all right, let's let's go try this. And uh, from dude, from the from the moment I stepped on the mats, I was fucking obsessed with it. Do you do you think it attributes because of your physicality as a teenager? You were like it kind of was feeding that last or that uh, that previous life that you had as an athlete. You're like, look, this is this is so much fun. Like, what was it about it that you were just all about it? Dude, I didn't. My previous life was not that of an athlete. My previous <laughs> life was that of of sitting on the sidelines, injured most of the time. Honestly. Oh man! And I, I actually wonder like how much of that I created. Like looking back at it now, you know, like I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't feel I didn't feel comfortable being like in my football uniform, right? Like I, I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. So anytime I had a chance to be injured, honestly, like I was fucking injured. Some of them were legitimate too. I got a bunch of concussions playing football and I was out for a while, but long story short, I was not a child athlete by any means. So I think jujitsu appealed to me kind of in the same way that physical therapy appealed to me, where it was the combination of the cerebral aspect with the physical aspect. So, I mean, jujitsu is a very cerebral game, but it's expressed with your physical body, right? Like it does not exist just in your mind. So I guess I liked the marrying of those two aspects. Um, I liked that of, you know, all, all the, all the common things. I like that technique kind of trumps like brute strength, right? Like if you know what you're doing, you can kind of outmaneuver your opponent. And, um, I think that kind of stuff was obvious to me day one. It was obvious that I didn't know any of it, but it was obvious that like, if I stuck with this long enough, I would get to that point also. Um, I kind of like that idea that like, a black belt and a white belt are really not different whatsoever. It's just a factor of time that separates them. So that really appealed to me too, that like, Hey, if I stick with this, like this is something I can realistically become world-class in, in the span of my life. And I I really like that. So do you, do you have this desire to, because you're a doctor, whatever you put yourself like in you, you just, try to strive for the 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 best you can do you know what i mean do you, like how do you approach jujitsu and with the successes you've already had in life previously yeah um bro don't get the wrong idea about me being a doctor and being good at everything like, <laughs> well they both are a substantial time commitment yeah yeah that's why this i'm is, thinking this like is true college i guess it, school. i guess more than anything it just shows that like if i want something i can dedicate massive amounts of time to it and like sort of accept that like deferred payoff, like that delayed payoff of it. Um, But no, dude, during grad school, I mostly taught myself how to cook. I was watching Gordon Ryan or Gordon Gordon Ramsay cooking videos, like instead of paying attention in class. Um, So I make a mean fucking steak and I can fix your knee pain. But (laughs) that's even more impressive. Shit, I am such a failure. (laughs) Going back to your question. The way that I approach everything, and like this, this does tie to like why I became a PT, right? Is like at its core is this desire to help people. Kind of my like motto has been always like if I'm ever like two rungs higher than you on a ladder, my first instinct is to turn around and give you a hand up. So it doesn't matter what it is, but if I have something that someone else needs and I'm in a position to share it with them, I will do whatever is in my power to share that. So to me. Training jujitsu is a vehicle to help people more. Um, my goal is actually to teach jujitsu, um, and like embrace any possible role to teach, which unfortunately as a two stripe white belt, uh, two stripe blue belt, rather not a white belt, Freudian slip there, two stripe blue belt. <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. Uh, 
<laughs> Dude, it does. <laughs> but unfortunately, those opportunities are few and far between. But like back in my home academy at Silver Fox in New Jersey, like I was the guy that always without fail got paired with like the brand new person. And I loved that because it meant that the coach knew that that person was going to have a good experience training with me. And that's my goal, like training with a new person. I want them to have an amazing time because I want them to come back because I know how important jujitsu will be for their life. And they might not even see that yet, but I know it. And so you can definitely be the reason someone doesn't come back to jujitsu. If you just yeah. beat the shit out of someone, if you're, if you're mad at them, if you're passive aggressive, if you're just disinterested, like, of course, brand new, like trial class guy doesn't know what the fuck is going on. So help him. Right. Because I know the impact jujitsu has had on me. So I want every fucking man, woman, and child on earth to train jujitsu. And I want to be the reason that someone comes back. I want to be the reason that someone has a good day. I want to be the reason that someone is encouraged to keep coming back when they're hitting a wall. And I want to be the reason that someone finds jujitsu and keeps training it for the rest of their life. Do you have a plan for your longevity in jujitsu? I listened to you on a previous podcast. And you mm -hmm. said you wanted, you know, you wanted to do this till you were 80 years old if you could. And I was curious, yeah. do you have a plan for that? Like, uh, is there something you do the where you know you can you can go that long without breaking down? No, I would say it's less of like a specific like step-by-step -step plan, but it's more a matter of how I approach everything. So, it's it's almost like that will happen by accident by virtue of how I orient everything. So, how I orient my diet, how I orient my sleep, my training, every habit in my life is designed to like maximize health and fitness and function and purpose and fulfillment for as long a period of time as possible. Yeah, I do want to choke out like my John's like, dang it, man. I was hoping I was getting some tips from you, but it's all right. All right we'll, we'll get some here. <laughs> but honestly, though, like that's that's the thing. Like, I don't, uh, I don't follow like a specific meal plan. I, I don't even own a scale. Right. But like, not to brag, like I still have abs because like I just eat well and like exercise, right? Like I don't periodically I'll like put more structure into like my weightlifting plan if I'm addressing a specific goal. But it's like. Let's choose movements that don't break down your body. Um, one of my mentors always said, make every rep therapeutic. So like if you're in the gym, ask yourself, is this aiding my long-term health or is this detracting from it? And if you, again, orient every decision around that kind of thinking, you're going to win in the long term. When it comes to like the physical therapy side of jujitsu, when you first started, did you start, did you, did it catch your eye on you know, common injuries and things people were doing wrong that wasn't helping their longevity that you didn't see very therapeutic? What were they? Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, at its core, it's not that complicated. Like, doing anything is going to be better than doing nothing. So I think a lot of people spin their wheels thinking about which program to follow, which mobility tools to buy. Like they, they want to get everything perfect and then start implementing it. But if you look at their lives, they're sleeping like shit, they're eating like shit, and they're not exercising outside of jujitsu. So those are some very simple places to start that you can start with right now that are going to pay massive dividends. So, you know, like the, the best recovery tool is eight hours of sleep. 
the best pre-workout is a balanced diet and the best like mobility and training plan is whichever one you adhere to for a long period of time. It doesn't have to be that hard. So, uh, that's, that's how I view it. Um, honestly, like even back when I was in a clinic, I sometimes asked myself, maybe I was just being lazy with my thought approach because if someone came to me, like I wouldn't worry so much about identifying which exact structure is wrong in your shoulder, right? Like which exact ligament is it? Which is it your supraspinatus or your infraspinatus or your subscapularis? Like their shoulder hurts. I don't really honestly care why, because the path forward is going to pretty much look the same. It's going to be like, find what movements you can tolerate, start there, slowly progress over time. So again, like I had my own mental battles of like, am I just a lazy piece of shit with my like <laughs> clinical thinking? Um, but no, I, I stand by that. I think people overcomplicate everything. I think the answer lies in simplicity and consistency. So if you can nail that, like you're going to win in the long term. I posted this meme the other day. It was like uh, my knees after uh, one takedown attempt, and it was, it was mm -hmm. you know, it was a mm -hmm, you sure did. yeah, yeah. It they was like tag me in it, yeah, tag John <laughs> in it, right? It was like not today, old friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel yeah. like knees are probably the knees and back are probably the things that people in jujitsu have the most issues with. Why, yeah. why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You you asked me before like injury patterns, so definitely like knees, low back neck, shoulder. Um, so why is that? I think a lot of these things come back to, uh, again, like very simple kind of way of thinking about it, a simple framework. So we have, uh, you know, d different joints, different muscles in your body have a specific capacity to handle stress in them, right? If you are routinely, you know, in, in your daily life, you're not asking very much of your body. You're asking it to go up and down the stairs. You're asking it to carry groceries. That's about it. You then go and train jujitsu. You're now asking quite a bit of those structures in your body. So you're exposing them to like way greater stress than they're used to, right? That's all the injury boils down to is where the stress that you're placing on your body exceeds its capacity to handle that stress. If it's by a small amount over time, that's a chronic injury. If it's by like a huge amount, in a short period of time, that's an acute injury. So someone heel hooks you, they're asking your knee to rotate further than it's capable of, and something gives, right? Like your ligaments or your meniscus. For your knees, if you're asking your knees to perform these takedowns when really they can't actually control and handle that stress over time, that yields in knee pain, right? So if you think about what you're actually doing when you take a penetration step, like, like let's imagine a penetration step where you drop your knee fully to the ground, right? You're stepping in, you're lowering your level, and you're trying to lower your knee all the way to hit the floor, right? If I asked you to do that right now really slowly and with control, you probably couldn't do it. Like you probably can't do a pistol squat on one leg and drop your knee all the way to the floor from there. So what happens when you do it on the mats? is you just blow through that movement and you use momentum and hope for the best, basically, and your knee smacks the floor. And you don't think anything of it because it's padded and because your adrenaline's going. But what you've just done is you've asked your body to take on way more than it's actually capable of handling. And again, you do that one time, that's okay. But now let's think, you know, you're, you're, you're not a young man, right? So you're up there in age, you've got whatever history of injuries you've got. <laughs> You've got the accumulation of your training. 
you've got the fact that maybe you're not eating well and sleeping well, so you're not recovering well in between each session. And now that threshold for your body to handle some shit thrown at it without injury, like that threshold, that buffer zone is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's where all of injury prevention lies is how can we reduce what you're asking of your body? So maybe in the short term, that means don't try to hit as many takedowns while your knee hurts. And then the other side of that is how can we expand that capacity? And that's where strength training and mobility training comes in. Right. So if you can, dumb example, if you can like bicep curl 20 pounds, you're not going to be able to defend an arm bar against someone ripping it. Right. Now, if we increase your strength and you can bicep curl 100 pounds, you're going to be able to resist that arm bar much better. Uh, like stupid example, but that's the principle behind it is how can we expand that capacity of your body in order to handle the stress that's being placed on it? Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that, we have people that, uh, listen to us obviously we're more targeted towards the beginning practitioner and so the a lot of people have these uh like we mentioned in our previous episode they have these physical limitations that they're really worried about or they feel yeah. like they're not able to do jujitsu uh what simply because just a lack of knowledge of like knowing what works for them and what doesn't you know what i mean which only comes with time of actually doing it and then too you know some of them actually do have injuries you know they're, they've been sedentary for a long time. They're overweight. They're not athletic. You know, they've, and this is their first time doing a combat sport or something like that. How do you think they should approach it in the best aspect to, for longevity to not, you know, kind of uh, amplify these, these issues that they might have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question because it's a bit of a double-edged sword because the last thing I ever want to do is discourage people from training. Right. And I think it's very easy to let things like that be an excuse for not starting, right? Like how many times have you heard someone say like, oh, I'll yep. start training once I'm in shape, once I yeah. fix my knee, once I get my cardio up. That's, those are all lies that you tell yourself. But that's why I want to be careful about how I answer this because I don't want to push people in that direction. So at the same time, though, you do have to listen to what your body's telling you and sort of respect the limitations. So one of these concepts that I always talk about is training with respecting the weakest link in the chain. So what I mean by that is, you know, take like a bench press, for example, maybe your pecs can handle bench pressing a ton of weight, but your elbow is flared up. So now as you push the weight, it's bothering your elbow. You can keep going up because you have the strength, but your elbow is telling you, hey, bro, I don't like this. So that's what I mean by like respecting the weakest link in that chain. And as it pertains to training, that's going to look like tapping as soon as someone gets you in a position that even potentially could bother your ankle or your knee or something like that, right? It's like part of that is letting go of the ego, right? Like if someone has you in, I don't know, like single leg X or whatever, yeah, like you shouldn't be tapping just from that position. But like if they're about to sweep you and you know that that's going to fuck up your knee, like just stop, just tap. Like people don't realize they can tap it like any time. And like it doesn't have to be a solution. <laughs> exactly. And if you have a training partner that respects you, they'll listen to that and you can reset or you can work around it or just say like, hey, bro, go slow right here. And that's a hard thing for beginners, too, because like you, you still don't even know jujitsu. You don't know how to communicate about these things. You probably don't have a great rapport with the people in the gym. So it's a tricky thing to navigate. But just honestly, like it's as simple as that of just respecting your body and not putting yourself in positions that would compromise an already compromised structure, like a knee injury, a shoulder injury, whatever. Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of challenging too. And I don't know how many people experience it, but, uh, 
when you go speak to a physician, like I'll go to see my orthopedic surgeon or whatever, and, you know, he'll be like, well, you know, when did you notice the pain? I'm like, well, try explaining jujitsu to some people that have never heard of it. And yeah. their immediate thing is, well, you need to stop doing that. I'm like, no, yes. the injury yeah. is not from class or training, you know, like that's something I think people might encounter is I've had two shoulder surgeries and both times, um, when they talk about it, they don't understand jujitsu at all. And I'm trying to explain what I'm doing. That's something I, I mean, I wish somebody had your knowledge there when I was in physical therapy, that would have been great. Like, no, yeah. the Moros, no, like stay off the shoulders, but you know, that, that's Dude, a challenge people can see too. It's, it's a huge problem. It's something I used to like make a ton of memes about and shit on my social media of like doctors just have no idea. None, and you're none. right. The average answer that you hear is just like, first of all, they look at you like you're crazy and ask, yep, why I you know. Do that? And then the second thing is they tell you to stop. And I, I, I do think that's changing a little bit as we have like more younger people graduating and becoming physicians and PTs. And there is more of an awareness and understanding. But unfortunately, that is still the norm. And it leaves people in a bind. So it's like either I don't go to the doctor because I know what he's going to tell me or I go Maybe he offers you a knee brace. Maybe he offers you painkillers or an injection and tells you to stop training. Mm -hmm. you're, you're no better off. In fact, I, I think a lot of times people are worse off when they come back from a doctor because that doctor has now made you scared or made you feel fragile. So yeah, people hear shit like, like, oh, crap. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they do an x-ray of your knee and they're like, oh, you have the knees of an 80-year-old. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? I hate shit like that. <laughs> Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, cool. There's some arthritis. So, like, it, here, here's a fact. Like, if you take a 1,000 people off the street and you give them an MRI of their shoulder or their back or their knee, up to, like, 70% of them will have, like, arthritic changes or degenerative changes. And they're completely asymptomatic, right? So, like, if you, if you did an MRI of my shoulder, you would find fucked up stuff in there. My shoulder feels completely fine. So people go to a doctor and they hear, like, oh, you have 70% stenosis of the uh, foramenal cavity and you think that you're going to die of cancer. <laughs> so how long do I have to live, doc? <laughs> it's like, bro, you're completely fine. So like doctors do a lot of harm, honestly, with the language that they use. And, um, you know, that's another one of my kind of core principles is like everything that I try to do, I want to empower, I want to make people feel empowered about their health, right? I want to make you feel like your body is okay. And it is within your power to improve it. So maybe your situation sucks, right? Like maybe you've got some like significant things wrong with your knee. But as long as you're breathing, your body is capable of change. Like our bodies are so good at adapting to the stress that is put on them. So that's all that rehab is, is finding the right starting point where we can start to stress your body constructively, let it like respond by getting stronger and just progress that over time. The answer isn't take some pills to mask the pain or take a shot to take the pain away. It's like, again, maybe lazy clinical thinking, but like it's pretty fucking simple. It's just really hard to actually implement that. And most doctors just make people feel scared about their bodies. Yeah, I think also like when it comes to our community, people you, like John mentioned and we we just mentioned is a lot of times doctors don't understand it either. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they they hear you know John puts his shoulders on a stress by grappling a, a 
wrestling a 20 year old you know that yeah. was a former d1 wrestler and they're like well why would you do that he's like well because it, it's fun first of all you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> and then too it's it's my it's a hobby of mine like you know it's yeah. like i and i think it's a completely underrated aspect of saying like you mentioned like you don't have to tap just from like submissions if if john john taps right now because of his shoulder before someone even locks a head and arm triangle in you know what I mean? Exactly. As soon as they work yeah. it up, I'm just like, you got it. You're good. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. so I think that's I think that's a great point that people probably don't think about. You know, they think yeah. they they have this idea that, oh, if I tap from something that's not a submission, one, I'm probably I'm a bad training partner because I'm not allowing my, my partner to work. And then two, I'm over. I feel like I might be overreacting or, you know, any other excuse that they give themselves. But really. You're doing yourself and your training partner a disservice by trying to push it because if you hurt yourself, now your training partner is out of training, another training partner, mm -hmm. and you're out of training. You know what I mean? So I think it's a great point that you brought up is is you know tapping, whether it's a submission or not. If you feel uncomfortable in a position, you you should stop doing that because yeah, yeah. otherwise you're just going to it's, – it's a, it's a double-edged sword again. No, I'm, thank you for highlighting that because – it is a weird thing. Like that's almost what maturing as a jujitsu athlete is, yeah. is like letting go of that ego of not wanting to tap. I deal with that a lot. Cause I, I think it's a thing that like people have deeper carotid arteries. So it's actually harder to choke them than other people. Um, I don't know like how true that is, but <laughs> I've heard just... that somewhere. So like, it's, it's genuinely hard to Hold choke me. <laughs> not, <laughs> not that, so like, not, not that I don't tap. Right. But yeah. like, I can genuinely like chill there in a head and arm choke for like a while. And I've started just tapping as soon as someone puts something like that on because it's not worth my neck getting mangled yeah. for my own like contentment of escaping a choke, which does yeah. bring in a weird thing of like I tap and then do you tell them like, hey, bro, that was a neck crank because like I want him <laughs> to get better at doing the choke. So like it's valuable feedback, but I don't want to be that guy. So I normally just keep yeah, my mouth yeah. shut and I'm like, good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. High five, bro. Good, good submission. Yeah, so yeah, if, yeah. if people at home kind of, uh, this might be a difficult question for you to answer, but say, yeah. uh, people have, you know, a back injury, a shoulder injury or limitations in one of their, you know, common joints within jujitsu. If you could give like, you know, just one or two moves that someone could do, this might be very difficult for you to answer, but maybe a, like a full body warm up, like typical way to, to help prime their body before jujitsu. Because a lot of times in our jujitsu ups, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, hit areas that some people might need a little bit more focus on. So they might have to take it upon themselves before or after class. What, what, how would you look at that? Yeah. I mean, the whole topic of jujitsu warmups is pretty fucked. Like most of them are useless. Um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it, it is hard to answer that question on the one hand. Cause like it should be like, you should be doing some stuff that's specific to whatever injury you've got going on. Um, there are a few things though, that will like always be good. So I'm a huge fan of like lateral lunges because most of our life takes place in like a straight forward and backward plane. So anytime you can add some rotation or lateral movement into the mix, it's going to be good. Um, maybe we can even do this. I don't know when this podcast would air, but I could like just go film some shit to put up as like a supplement to this episode. Yeah. yeah. There's, I, it plans, there's, it, it'll come out on the first. So if, okay. if people are listening to this, it's the first. All right, cool. Cause lateral lunges are awesome open up your hips, get your knee exposed to a little bit of that lateral movement. Um, anything like bear crawls is really, really good too. Mm. The problem is that it's very difficult to actually do it right. Um, 
So like a sloppy bear crawl would probably be worse than no bear crawl. But if you're doing it right, it's a phenomenal movement. Um, so some stuff like that. And again, like that's why I'd rather like almost give some people some videos to watch where I can point out things that would be really boring to listen to on the podcast. Um, Do you have resources like that maybe good. that you could send people to besides yourself that they could find something like this that somewhere that you, you like kind of look up to in this, in this aspect? Oh, dude, there's there's a few other people doing amazing things. So um, Nick Smith on Instagram, like Smith Ford Strength and Conditioning, and give a shout out to him. He's got awesome video content. Um, and then a couple of my mentors, um, I can definitely provide you guys some links to put in the show description. Um, yeah, because now I feel bad that I'm drawing a blank on his. No, Instagram you're good. Account. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys but are listening honestly, to this, it, check the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what matters more than like you have to do this move or, you know, this is the the best stretch that you could possibly be doing is pick something and do it regularly. So I kind of have this idea that I've been kicking around in my head of like a 5, 10, 30 system where you spend five minutes doing whatever like specific warm up you think you need. You spend 10 minutes of exploring movement. So, um, Honestly, I'm a big fan of using some cannabis to assist with this, where you're not moving in any specific rigid way, because um, jujitsu is pretty unpredictable, right? Like there are there's certain pathways that you know your body is exposed to more, like closed guard, single leg X, whatever these things that we find ourselves in. But it is very unpredictable of how you're going to flow in between those movements. I don't think we spend enough time training that. Um, you go to the gym and you do three sets of ten reps of you know, a perfectly linear movement that hasn't really prepared your body or your brain very well for the demands of jujitsu. So I think people need to spend a little more time like exploring their body, like just get some open space in your living room or something, move the couch out of the way and just move around and like, see what happens, see where your body feels stuck, see what feels good, see where, see where it doesn't feel good, like see where it's painful. And then every 30 days or so changing up how you approach that. So like, you have whatever routine you're sticking to for five minutes a day, like every day, five minutes, I do push-ups, I do lateral lunges, and I do planks, for example. And then after a month, you change that up and you stick with another thing for five minutes a day. So I, I guess that's kind of one message I keep coming back to in this conversation is like consistency over, you know, one perfect exercise. The best exercise is whatever you do every day. Well, consistency is big. I mean, even in jujitsu, right? We're like, how many times are you going to show up to class a week? You know, you're looking for consistency in pretty much everything. It's the only yep. way you really get better. Right. Totally. So let's let's dive into, you mentioned that you like to do that 5, 10, 30 with a little bit of a devil's lettuce to, to help out. <laughs> <laughs> with uh you know plant-based therapy and stuff like that let's let's jump into how you got into that i think that's a perfect segue to to lead into this so so what just how i got into the plant medicine stuff in general yeah yeah just to kind of get the background of it first and we can yeah, dive sure. a little bit deeper into it support for elbows tight is brought to you by manscaped who is the best in men's below the waist grooming Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped recently launched the Ultimate Men's Hygiene Bundle, the performance package. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code ETP20 at manscaped.com. 
If my math is correct, that's about 8 million balls. That's a lot of balls, Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) When Manscaped reached out to work with us, I instantly thought, yes, what a deal. I've been using Manscaped products for a while now. And when they mentioned helping out with the podcast, I, I thought it was a no-brainer. I have the Lawnmower 4.0 now, but I had the Lawnmower 3.0 and absolutely loved it. Also, most people think about Manscaped as tr- just trimmers, but really they have ball deodorant, ball toner, the weed whacker, which is your favorite thing, right, John? Yeah, I love the weed whacker. Look, I'm about to hit like 45 years old, so I got hair growing out of everywhere now. So it's coming out my ears. I'm like, man, where is that weed whacker? It's definitely my favorite. <laughs> Get 20% off and free shipping with the code ETP20 at Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code ETP20. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools to get the job done with Manscaped. So I guess there was a point in my life where my personality was strictly based on the podcast I listened to because I told you I got into jujitsu because of Joe Rogan. And then I also was obsessed with this guy named Sam Harris who was a, uh, he's a, he's a speaker and neuroscientist. He's like a hardcore atheist, which I used to be as well. And he talked a lot about neuroscience. And um, that was another interest of mine always was just like how our brain works, fascinated by it. And he talked about using psychedelics as a means to sort of explore human consciousness. So I've always been interested in like meditation, um, neuroplasticity, just kind of like exploring what our brain is capable of. So I listened to Joe Rogan enough to try jujitsu and I listened to Sam Harris enough to try LSD when I was in grad school. Um, same guy, Ryan, actually, who got me into jujitsu, gave me the acid. So he's been a, a major Thanks, influence Ryan. on my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was kind of my first experience with it was just purely out of interest in neuroscience. And like I said, I used to be a hardcore atheist and then I took LSD and I was like, well, I'm definitely not an atheist anymore because a lot of shit happened that I could not explain. And then, um, you know, just remained interested in it, kind of dabbled. I, I kind of put myself on like a microdosing program when I was super depressed at one point in my life um, towards the, the tail end of PT school. Um, I actually just told all of these stories on an episode of my podcast. So if people are interested in hearing all of my harrowing LSD journeys, uh, I have a whole episode about that. And all of that ultimately led to um, a couple years ago now going to Costa Rica to this retreat center called Soltara to sit with ayahuasca, um, which I can do. Do you want to hear a little bit more about? Like, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. go right ahead. All right, all right. I know there's a lot of people out there that are interested in this stuff because, you know, like you mentioned, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, these guys are they talk a lot about microdosing. I don't even fully understand what microdosing is either. So if you want to explain that. Uh, sure. In this whole this whole amazing story that I'm super excited to hear, that by <laughs> all means. All right, I'll, I'll I'll tell you the story of like what brought me to work with ayahuasca, essentially. So, and what's an ayahuasca? I, That's like a uh, spiritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you for please at any point like pause me and I will explain more. Um, okay. It's almost this trap you fall into of like running in the same circles where you assume that everything. <laughs> so, so for real, thank thank you for for pausing me there. So ayahuasca refers to this brew. It's, it's sort of a tea almost. It's this concoction that is made by people of the Amazon rainforest. They've been using this for thousands of years, these like indigenous tribes. And what's so crazy about it is there's millions of plant species in the Amazon. It's the most biodiverse place on earth in terms of different species of plants. Out of every single one of those plants, there are only two 
that if you combine them in the right way, produce this very potent psychedelic tea. And the crazy thing is either one of those plants by themselves does nothing. So mm. that's a huge mystery right there of how the fuck did they figure that out? <laughs> right? Like no amount of trial and error would get you there. And, and actually, if you ask them, they'll tell you that the plant spirits taught them. They have some very interesting like origin stories of all this stuff. So anyway, that's what it is. It's a psychedelic tea that's brewed out of these two plants, the ayahuasca vine and the chacruna leaf. Um, give you a little bit more info. Why not? So the, the ayahuasca vine contains something called an MAO inhibitor. So you've heard of DMT, like Joe Rogan smokes DMT, mm-hmm. right? So the chacruna leaf has the DMT in it. DMT, Joe Rogan smokes it because it's not orally active. If you eat it, it gets broken down right away by enzymes in your stomach. That's why you have to smoke it to get it into your bloodstream. Okay. The magic of these two plants is that the ayahuasca vine has something that stops the enzymes in your stomach from breaking it down. So it allows you to consume it orally and have an effect. And that's why like the two plants by themselves would do nothing. But in combination, they let you trip for like six hours, like four to six hours. So ayahuasca is used traditionally very ceremoniously. There's a lot of ritual around it. There's a lot of ceremony around it. It's a sacred thing to these people. And there's some problems, honestly, with the industry right now where you can buy ayahuasca on the dark web and you can go to someone's living room in Brooklyn or like San Francisco and you can do it with some white guy with dreadlocks and that's very problematic. (laughs) So... These indigenous people down in Peru, like it's, it's a sacred medicine to them. It's spiritual healing, right? So they believe that whatever is ailing you, it has, it has like a physical, a mental and a spiritual component and they can use the ayahuasca. They can work with the ayahuasca to heal you. And it's usually, it should be performed by, um, we use the term shaman. They usually don't actually refer to themselves as shamans. They prefer the term maestro or like which means like teacher or master. So a maestro is someone who's dedicated his life to working with these plants. So my wife and I were affiliated with a center down in Peru that's fully owned and operated by the Shipibo people. And um, our maestros have been serving ayahuasca for like over 25 years each. They're like a married couple. Um, So... Is that a good primer on ayahuasca? Do you have follow-up questions or should I launch back? Um, Well, you're talking about it. I'm like, how does that compare to like peyote? Like that's what I for some reason I was just thinking about that. I know that's also a, a psychedelic experience and it's got some religious background to it. But totally. yeah, I think you yeah. said this one is like six hours, and I was thinking peyote, I believe, is a couple days. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, there's definitely similarities. So I've I haven't sat with peyote yet. I actually really want to. Um, so if you know a guy, let me know. But <laughs> if you listen there's to this, you know someone. Let David know. <laughs> there's you definitely might get a bunch of DMs after this episode. <laughs> definitely similarities in that it is like a, a sacred sort of ceremonial mm-hmm. rite. Um, it's my understanding, like a, a dose of peyote or like a, a peyote ceremony, I guess, would kind of run like all night. I know like mm-hmm. the Lakota people. I think that's what they do is they have like a, a teepee, like a sweat lodge kind of thing, where you're up from sunset to sunrise, like gazing into a fire, essentially. Um, I could be wrong. Honestly, I, I, I don't know too much about that. Not even, I wouldn't even call myself an expert on ayahuasca, but that is definitely what I know the most about. Um, but yeah, definitely similarities there. So anyway, so um, 
So yeah, so I guess just from being interested in psychedelics, from being kind of dipping my toes in this world, I'd heard about ayahuasca, kind of knew what it was. It sort of felt like that was the next step on my path, so to speak. And you'll hear people in the world of ayahuasca, you'll hear us talk about feeling called to work with the medicine. And it really is this thing where you just feel something deep inside yourself that is calling you towards seeking this out. And if you're not feeling that, I don't think that you should work with it at all. Like it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not, it's definitely not something to be taken recreationally. But if you feel something within yourself saying like, hey, I think this is the next thing for me, then you should listen to it. And I, w I was feeling that. So this was happened. It like, did you feel mm -hmm. like at peace or just like more, um, I guess, just more calm, more with yourself after an experience like this? Like, Oh, dude. So the biggest takeaway that I got from working with ayahuasca was basically that everything is exactly perfectly as it should be at all times. So previously I had so much anxiety. I, I, I like wouldn't be able to make any decision. I had no idea how human beings made decisions because I would be looking at two paths. Like I could take this job or that job and I would weigh every single pro and con. I would play out the entire rest of my life, like down each path and try to figure out what was the right way to go. I was like paralyzed by simple decisions. I also like put a lot of pressure and stress on myself. I was one of those people who never thought I was good enough, never thought I was doing enough. The entire outside world was telling me like, oh, wow, you're a doctor. Wow, you have an amazing career. You did so well in school. Good for you. And on the inside, I felt like a fraud because I was like, I'm a failure and I suck at everything I do. Why are you telling me that I'm doing a good job? So the first time I worked with ayahuasca kind of took all of that away. Um, made me feel good about myself probably for the first time in my 25 years of life at that time. Um, made me feel like everything was actually going to work out okay for the first time in 25 years. Um, so that's in a nutshell what came of that. It also changed some other behaviors that let me actually, uh, I, I met my wife at that retreat. And so that was one of the things I was there to change as well was my behavior in like romantic relationships because I used to be kind of a fuck boy and I would like <laughs> date multiple women and be sleeping with multiple women at the same time. Um, partially for like the validation of like, hey, people like me, people are into me. And also partially to create drama in my life because um, it was much easier to like deal with the drama that came with talking to five girls at the same time than it was to start a business, than it was to start a podcast, than it was to do any of these things that my soul was actually called towards. So I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Pressfield, but he would call that like a shadow life where you're creating all of this shit just to get in your own way to hold yourself back. Right. So working with ayahuasca, let me kind of put all of that to bed and dedicate my life to one woman who is my amazing wife that I live here in Mexico with now. So did you find it help your uh, jujitsu at all? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I was just curious. No, it's, it's a really good question. Cause I do think that psychedelics in general help my jujitsu. I think there was maybe so much else going on. I didn't notice it. Um, mm. I was also earlier on my path. So I was like a brand new blue belt when that happened. So I actually bet that like now I would be better able to answer that question of like, if it really changes things. Um, I don't know. That is a good be question. Interesting, right? You got the blue belt blues and then you're like, nope, it's gone. <laughs> good. 
<laughs> it could be. Do you, do you I feel mean, like it, it's made you more like calm in life and in like stressful situations, that's what like jujitsu? Like, you know what I mean? Just like accepting because, it. Yeah, like we put, like you mentioned, we we're putting so much uncertainty in in such a short period of time with just one jujitsu class. I can imagine it's just your mind. You know, you have like this whole new aspect and view on life. You're probably more more willing to be like, yeah, it's it's all right, man. I'll get out of this. Honestly, I, I, I would agree with that. And even the mindset that I was talking about before of like, I'm in a head and arm choke. I could sit here and survive this and let my neck get mangled, but I don't need to. Right. Cause like, yeah. I know that, I, like, I know that he's not joking me. I don't need to prove it to anyone. Right. So I, I would no say no one else is watching anyways and no one cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it does help you kind of subjugate the ego that tries to come out in jujitsu a little bit more kind of put things in perspective of like, is this serving me the best possible or am I actually like kind of hitting myself in my own dick here with my behaviors? <laughs> That's a good way to say it. So when you do these, these, uh, these, you know, these trips or however you want to call yeah. it, um, these, these trips with psychedelics, when you're done and you're coming down, are you taking notes on like what happened? Are you like, how, how do you keep track of like, do you talk to people afterwards and kind of engage and understand what's going on and how it can like apply to your life? Yeah. Yeah. So the question you're asking is kind of getting to what we call integration. So there's a huge emphasis that we place on preparing for an ayahuasca retreat and then integrating from it after because you go and you have this ineffable experience and you fucking meet God and you see all of these things laid out with so much clarity and then you come back and you're supposed to just go right back into your daily life back in New Jersey. Like it's not going to work out very well. So that process looks a little different for each different person, but normally it does involve a lot of journaling and not like you're trying to take notes to frantically capture everything that you learned because you won't be able to, but it's more so of trying to kind of put together these pieces into a holistic new you that you take going forward. So Honestly, an amazing analogy for a jujitsu retreat is to think about going to like a week long. Uh, did I just say a jujitsu retreat? A yeah. good analogy for an ayahuasca retreat <laughs> is to think about a jujitsu seminar. Sorry. So <laughs> it's funny. I've got the two things on my brain. So <laughs> I, I knew going, where you were going. Yeah, I was we, like, we were following. Yeah, yeah. Like, all right, all right. <laughs> so going, going to work with ayahuasca, when we say like do ayahuasca, Oftentimes you'll hear people say like sit with ayahuasca or sit with mother ayahuasca because we kind of personify the spirit of it. So you can think of it like going into a week long private ceremony with like a master jujitsu teacher. And so you're going to go into that with some questions, right? You're going to take some time to prepare and analyze your game, analyze your strengths and weaknesses. And you're going to know like, okay, every time I'm in this position, I fuck up. I want to ask my coach like why this is happening and what I can do differently. Mm. it's that's what the preparation phase is like it's reflecting on your life just like you'd reflect on your jujitsu to identify what questions to ask but then the crazy part is you might get to that lesson let's say you, you know you're like hey coach i really want to work on this inverted arm bar and the coach is like well hey your finishing mechanics for a regular arm bar actually really suck and we have to start there are you going to say no i'm paying you and i want to learn this or are you going to accept that the coach has a different thing for you to work on and you have to learn to like let go of your expectations and accept whatever it's teaching you? So that's like a direct analogy to working with plant medicine. If I'm so attached to what I think I'm supposed to get out of this, then I'm not going to learn anything because mm -hmm. the coach is trying to show me something and I'm not being receptive to it. 
And then to, to further the analogy here, so let's say you go to this week-long camp, like I went to the Origin camp up in Maine a couple weeks ago or a couple years ago. You're getting like 24-7 jujitsu instruction from all these different coaches. You can't possibly bring every single thing home that you learned. You're right. no amount of frantically writing notes or filming everything. You're not going to be able to absorb it all, and that's okay. Your goal should be to come home from that with like one to three things to really focus on and and sort of like drill them back at your home academy until they're part of your game now, until you've mastered it. And that's what integration from ayahuasca is, is let's identify like one to three, maybe five things that we can start working on that you're going to journal about. You're going to meditate on these things. You're going to try to put them into practice when these situations come up and you're going to drill them in your life until that's just part of who you are now. It's, the first thing that came to my mind when you talked about the integration into your life after these experiences, the the abrupt like, okay, it's over now. Like you mentioned, I'm just going to go home to Jersey and just every, and yeah. it's all going to be good, right? No, it, you you need that time to understand what it all meant and everything like that. And it reminds me of uh, when we have, you know, we both are vets, and when we have guys come over, come back home from being, you know, at the time of war, a lot of times they get just a couple days of, you know flying over, you know, debrief, and then it's, hey, you're back at home in, you know, safe, safe times, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. a lot of people have a hard time breaking the the mindset of, you know, I'm at war. And do you feel like it's a plant-based medicine is great for veterans because it kind of like, it helps them uh, break that cycle, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I would, I would say where the benefits come from is it allows them to start to shift their identity. And, mm -hmm. um, you, your, your, your point is, a, I, I don't know how true this is. I'm not a veteran. I don't know too much about the community, but like in world war two, when you got home from fighting, you were on a cargo ship for like six months with all of yeah. your friends able to kind of share all these stories, decompress and just be among those dudes for like six months before you get home. And then we have Vietnam where like you could get blown up in the jungle and you're home with your family like 48 hours later. Yep. That, that can't be good for your psychology. So I'm, I agree with you that like, I think that that just abrupt transition is where a lot of problems come from because it doesn't allow you to shift that identity from I am a soldier at war to I am a veteran now. Like that's behind me. I am at home now. My war fighting days are over. And I, to me, that's, sort of the magic that plant medicine allows these people to start to take off that old identity and figure out who they want to be now. So I, I can share a little bit about this guy, Toby, um, only because he's so uh, open on his own Instagram. I, I normally wouldn't divulge the details of everyone I'm working with, but this guy, um, he served three tours in Afghanistan. He was like Canadian special forces and um, his service ended when his buddy stepped on an IED and Toby actually has fragments of this guy's fucking leg bones embedded in his body of shrapnel. And he told me the other day, and th this is the guy that's been microdosing with us for a couple of months to come off of his SSRIs, to come off of his antidepressants in preparation to go sit with us, sit with ayahuasca. And he told us the other day that he was looking around his house and he's got like all of the flags and all of the patches and all of, he has, he has a replica of the exact rifle he carried with him every day. He's got it like all mounted on his wall. 
he's got his fucking bloody uniform and boots in his closet that like have his best friend's blood on them. And he was telling me that he's realizing he doesn't really need these things in his house anymore because looking at those things every day and holding on to them is literally reinforcing that old identity of who he used to be. And basically Toby doesn't want to be that anymore. Like he doesn't need to be a fighter anymore. He needs to be a grandfather. He needs to be a husband. He needs to find a new mission, find new ways to serve people, but he's not in Afghanistan anymore. And all of the behaviors, and this is another thing I think comes through with PTSD is that all of the behaviors that kept Toby alive when he was in Afghanistan don't help him anymore. Right. So being hypervigilant, that keeps you alive when there's IEDs embedded on a road that you're walking down. Being hypervigilant when you're at the grocery store does not help you. Right. So I, I think that that's just one other aspect um, that people need to recognize as it pertains to PTSD is like a lot of the symptoms are actually behaviors that serve that old identity and it served them very well. And that's why they're so ingrained because you needed them to stay alive. But that old identity, it doesn't apply anymore when you're retired, when you're at home. And so we need to learn to let go, to kind of put down those behaviors that served us, to let go of those roles that you used to be and figure out who do I want to be if I'm not that? And how can I build a bridge to start living like this new guy instead of living like this guy who was over there fighting wars? And I'm gonna pause and, and ask if you guys can like relate to that because I'm sitting here, 28 year old dude who's never been to war and both of you guys I think have. So I'm, I'm curious if what all I've said is resonating with you or not. Well, I think what you're saying resonates with a lot of military people in general. Um, you got to figure some people do 20, 30 years and they're, and they're separating, right? That's been who they are mm -hmm. for a majority Forever. of their life, especially starting young. So when they get out, they have a hard time adjusting. A lot of people die right after they, they do 30 years and they die within 10 years of their service. You know, they lose yeah. completely who they are. And it's yeah. even the ones that aren't in, in a war zone. Yeah. It's just, that's their identity. It's that military for 30 years. They have a really hard time leaving that, you know, me and my wife, she hates it. When we go shopping or we go out to eat, I never ask for a veteran's Same. discount. I don't like asking mm -hmm. for it. Same. I didn't join up for a veteran's discount. Like that part of my life to me is over. I don't like to, I don't like to ask for it. I, I don't even, you know, veterans day and all that stuff. Like I'm not about that anymore. Like that's so far gone from me. The, the things that I like from the military, which carry over now are like jujitsu. You get the same camaraderie. You get that same group of people that are going through a shitty sucky situation and you make great friends in class, right? Like everyone's yeah. getting killed now. It sucks for everybody. Yeah. You yeah. know, but. Yeah, I think if your identity is made when you're in the military, they have a really hard time. Mine wasn't made in the military, so it was easier for me to adjust when getting out of it because I knew that's not who I was. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Trevor? Yeah, I would, I would agree with John. John, I think, hit the head, the nail on the head right there. Um, I used the military as a tool to, you know, place me. I knew, I thought I wanted to do, you know, be a career guy, and then... Um, I started to realize that, you know, uh, I was good at the military, you know, I made a rank fast and whatnot. And I, then I was like, you know what, if I can do this in the military in one of the hardest mm -hmm. jobs, uh, you know, out there, then I can only imagine what I can achieve outside of the military. Right. And so I kind of already had that, that mind of like, this isn't who I am. I'm just using yeah. this as like a stepping stone to who I want to yeah. become. 
Um, yeah. But that's not to say that it's not hard, even as someone that I didn't go to war, but you know, um, even as someone that did just under seven years active duty as a leader, you know, I I led people, I told them what to do and whatnot. Um, there is that transition period of like, hey, December thirty first, twenty fifteen, I was in the military. January first, twenty sixteen, uh, I was not. You know what right. I mean? And it was it right. was a little weird because I took the uniform off and um, my first job, I was like, hey, so what time is my lunch? And they're like, um, whenever you want to take it. I was like, okay, what time am I supposed to be to work? They're like, whenever you want to show up. You know what I mean? And it was like my first job outside of the military was a company built on trust. They're like, do whatever you want as long as you get your job done and within reason, right? Um, they're like, but, you know, it's 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 okay. And so that was that was so weird to me that you know I was I was twenty five when I separated, mm-hmm. and so it was so weird to me that people were treating me like a twenty five year old in the military. A twenty five yeah. year old is a, is a kid still. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. well, everyone in the military really is, is still a kid. I mean, you retire if you join at eighteen, you do twenty years, you retire at thirty eight years old. You're still a a youngster, you know, with a lot sure. of a lot of time still ahead of you. Um, one, but it was just weird. Thing- one other thing I'm hearing from both of you guys is that joining the military, like it, it's like it served a purpose, but you didn't need it in a sense to be whole. Yeah. And it that's my impression from a lot of the folks I've talked to who struggle when they get out of the military is that they joined the military to prove that they were tough enough or to prove something. Yeah. And they sort of need that to fill some hole within themselves. And so then when that's taken away, you've got this almost double problem of forging a new identity and Mm -hmm. not even being not coming from a place of wholeness in the first place, which is a problem with like any sort of abusive relationship or anything like that. Like you're choosing that because you're not good by yourself first. So I I don't know. I've, I've heard a lot of stories from like special forces type people that there's a lot of guys with a background of like childhood sexual abuse actually, because they've decided that they're going to become the toughest motherfucker ever so no one can ever do that to them again. And that's kind of what draws them to that field of work. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I agree. Know, I'm, I'm, and I've, I've heard that too. And I've also, we, we always joke about the guys that are like the toughest to work with. You know, they're like just jerks the entire time. They make everyone stay late. You know, they make you do unnecessary things. It's like that guy was probably bullied in school, and now that he has power, he's probably taking it out on everyone else. His frustration totally. from his earlier life before, you know, he was a, a air quotes no one, you know what I mean. But everyone is someone. Yeah. But you know, uh, and that's you know that that's true. It's we run into those people all the time. It's like they didn't have anything before the military, and then they make rank, they get power, and then they start. They don't know how to handle it because you know they've always been the the marginalized person or whatever. And, and so some of them, some of them, you know, do take it to the extreme like that. Yep. And then kind of tying that back to how plant medicines stand to help these people. I think on the one hand, it comes to just generating a better relationship to yourself. So if you were assault, like sexually abused when you were a kid, you've probably learned that you're a worthless piece of shit and you deserve to be abused. You deserve to feel like trash all the time. And again, like my, my wife works with women in like narcissistic and abusive relationships. And it's the same thing there. It's like, I think that I deserve to be treated like a piece of shit. So I'll seek out external circumstances that confirm that. And in a way, that's actually like what manifestation is just on like this inverted way of looking at it, of confirming that everything is terrible. So 
healing kind of starts from a place of improving that relationship to yourself, of recognizing that you're worthy of, at the bare minimum, being okay, if not, you know, worthy of receiving love, worthy of receiving respect from people. And that's definitely something that plant medicine can show you. Of course, that's not, uh, plant medicine isn't necessary for that. Of course, you can get to that place on your own. But a lot of people struggle. And so the plant medicine can sort of show them that it's possible. Um, and then you can find the path back to that on your own. And again, that's something that we place a huge emphasis on is that the plant medicine itself will not fix you. Like mushrooms do not fix you. They can help you a little bit, but you have to fix yourself. And that looks like, you know, journaling, affirmation, meditations, taking care of yourself, taking care of your physical body. But the plant medicine won't fix you. Um, I think that's a, a key thing to harp on. And I like it doesn't fix everyone because if, if you come into it with that mindset, you're not going to have a great time coming out of it and still having all these problems and now feeling worse because it didn't work for you or you must have done it wrong or something like that. If people want to get into this, you know, say this kind of resonates with them, uh, whether it's, you know, a jujitsu practitioner that feels like, you know, they're, they have some self-doubt or imposter syndrome or something like that. You know, they have like some internal struggle going on or it's just a veteran or whatever. How could they get into it without having to go like down to Peru and, and, and do an ayahuasca? Is there anything like locally that they can do that kind of not, not obviously get the same experience, but very similar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, like going down to Peru should not be the starting point for anyone. <laughs> People are booking line, airline tickets right now. They're like, well, Dr. David said. <laughs> I mean, we Go do, do have four spaces. My stuff is good. <laughs> we do have four spaces open for our May retreat, so it is. <laughs> there <open>. you go. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, my wife and I actually have put together this entire like three-month program of teaching people how to microdose. We do not supply the medicine because that would be illegal, but we can sure as hell teach you how to use it. So that's the one thing is like seek out probably like microdosing to be the first place to start dipping. Your Can you explain microdosing for it. me? Yes. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to I, interrupt me in the middle of the sentence. No, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you did. And I, I will in one second. But I wanted to make this other point that like even that doesn't need to be a starting place. Like you can do all of the things I'm talking about without the plant medicine. Almost like how what, what we were talking about before with like the doctors and everything like that. I never want anyone to feel dependent on anything outside themselves to fix them. Just like an injection is not going to fix your knee, a knee brace is not going to fix your knee, you are going to fix your knee. So ayahuasca will not fix you, microdosing will not fix you. You are the person that is fixing yourself. I, I just I want to drive that point home. So you don't have to microdose to start on this path. Start going to the fucking gym. Go to bed an hour earlier and wake up an hour earlier. Use that hour to meditate or to journal or to pray or to sing i don't know do something other than what you're doing right now if your life is in shambles and it will improve but i can go back to answering your question about microdosing so uh to microdose is to take a sub perceptual dose of one of these psychedelics so let's say mushrooms for example um a heroic dose would be like a lot that's what we work with when we uh, we host private psilocybin ceremonies. So if someone comes to us and they want to go deep with it, we give them five grams of mushrooms. That's a lot. Um, anywhere around like half a gram to one gram, like you're feeling it, right? So a microdose would be anywhere from like 50 to 200 milligrams, all right? So like 0.15 grams is usually the sweet spot for most people. So what happens when you're taking that is that 
like I said, it's sub-perceptual. So you're not tripping, you're not seeing colors, you're not hallucinating at all. What you are doing is you're making some changes to your brain chemistry that have very subtle but very profound effects. So the way that I always used to describe it is if I took a microdose in the morning, I would just go about my day like normal. Maybe I would stop and look at the grass and be like, damn, that looks really pretty today, right? Like I'm, I might have a nice conversation with my mom and not get agitated. And then I would go to bed and reflect on the day and be like, damn, today was a pretty good day. I wonder why. And then you kind of remember that you took a microdose th that morning. That's a, a good way of thinking about it as far as like the sub-perceptual aspect goes. Is it's just a little boost for everything that's going on. And again, it's not a fix by itself. So if you're an anxious person, it might actually make you feel more anxious because it kind of amplifies whatever is going on in the background. That's why it's so important to do some work on your own of trying to make your brain a nicer place to live. And then the microdose will amplify that a little bit. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So you mentioned earlier before we started recording that you have a jujitsu camp coming up. Is that going to be with microdosing and jujitsu, or can you, can you go into a little bit of detail on that? Yes, sir. So I can say that the plant medicine aspect is optional. So let's say there's some federal employees who wanted to come. You definitely don't have to partake, of course. So, but no, that's that's my vision for it. Is uh, it's not just a jujitsu retreat. It's kind of the world's first plant medicine holistic wellness jujitsu summit. That's kind of the how I'm referring to it in my brain. So yeah, we're gonna have a plant medicine option, like a plant medicine package available to people, because I want to expose people to microdosing. So I want to microdose and flow roll every morning. I don't think mm. that there's enough flow rolling that goes on in jujitsu. I think that there's, <laughs> dude. I, it I starts off flow rolling. <laughs> exactly, but no one, no one like actually flow rolls. Like no one flow. I, rolls I struggle with the hour. flow roll, so I get it. I, I, I do too. That. Like it's it's hard to yeah. keep it that way, but dude, I'm telling you right now that microdosing makes it better. It makes your brain more flowy. It literally. All right, maybe we can put a pin in this and discuss some of the neuroscience of like what's going on in your brain when you're on psychedelics. Go by all it. means, bro. Also, how are we doing on time on your end? Because I can talk about this for like days. I'm fine. I'm good right now. Cool. All right. So there's something. I would leave in your it brain. to under an hour if possible. This this okay. explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something in your brain called the default mode network. So this uh, it's basically running at all times in the background. It's almost like the the default operating system that your brain's got going on. So if you're sitting there doing nothing the default mode network is running, okay? You can think of that almost as like the main highway. So if you're driving to work every day, you always take the same route because it's the fastest route. No matter what's going on, you're on that same route every day. So that's kind of the circuit through which all the information gets processed. When you're on psychedelics, that default mode network, it gets shut down just a little bit. It gets kind of dampened. So now, instead of taking that highway, you're going to take the scenic route to work. And you're going to notice like, oh, shit, there's a new building over there. I'm like, wow, that, 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 you know, those flowers look really pretty. You're going to drive by all these things that normally you're not driving by on your everyday commute. And so that's what psychedelics do is they dampen this default mode network, which allows all of these other connections in your brain to have more traffic on them. It allows them to be more active. So all of your neurons in your brain are interconnected, like all over the place, but 
some of those connections never get used and others get used more. And that's like that main highway. So when you're on psychedelics, that main highway, again, it gets shut down and more of that traffic is routed through all of these scenic pathways. And that's why at large doses you get like synesthesia effects where like you might taste a color or like you might be able to like see a sound. And people with synesthesia have that normally just because their brain is a little bit different. And so people on psychedelics report that kind of shit because instead of the, the information going the fastest route, it's now taking the scenic route through your brain. So if you pair just a little bit of that, just a microdose, if you pair that with flow rolling with a good partner under the right circumstances, it will become the most fun, most flowy roll that you have ever had in your entire life. Because kind of the point of flow rolling is to explore all of these different avenues, right? Instead of just trying to go for the choke, you know, you put it on and then you move past it. You say, what else can come up from this position? And you allow that flow to actually occur. So I'm really excited to expose people to this and to kind of show that it's possible. Because a lot of people like don't know what microdosing is or they're scared to do it because they don't want to trip when they're at work or something like that. So I'm really excited to just show people the possibilities here of taking the medicine with intention, like setting, you know, setting an intention, saying a prayer as you take it, and then using it for that purpose of exposing, or I'm sorry, exploring a more flowy state of being. The camp is literally called Flow State Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. When, when, what's the time frame on that? It is August 3rd through 10th. Um, if that first week sells out, because we've got pretty limited spots, I think we got 12 spots. Um, if that first week sells out, we're going to open a second week right after it. Where can people find this at? You can go to uh, becomingohm.com. That's our website for all of the retreats and plant medicine. So becomingohm.com slash flow state. Or if you just go right to the website, you'll see like a retreats tab at the top. You can go there and read about our Peru retreats. You can read about our microdosing stuff and you can find our jujitsu camp. Do you, what do you think is is stopping microdosing be from becoming more of a mainstream or socially acceptable thing? Because um, I don't know. It sounds like from just having this conversation with you, more people would benefit from you know uh, an experience through plant based medicine. Well, I'm thinking it's like you can go to almost any jujitsu gym and there'll be uh, CBD products in there, right? Yep. You know what I mean. Lotion, but you're not going to see anything as far as the micro. Yep. that I haven't seen. Yeah, me neither. I think the, the biggest barrier in terms of that stuff is just the legality of it. So, mm. you know, 10 years ago, you didn't see CBD because True. hemp products were illegal, right? So 10 years from now, you're going to see microdoses on the shelves. Um, there's a, kind of some problems actually going on right now in the, the whole landscape of psychedelics because people are recognizing that legalization is coming. So just like five, 10 years ago, we had huge investments into like, marijuana cultivation so we're starting to see that happening now with psilocybin cultivation and kind of any time that corporate money starts getting thrown around there starts to become more and more fuckery involved yeah so the the beautiful thing about psilocybin is it's actually really easy to grow it yourself not that i'm recommending anyone break any laws but again certain parts of the country it's actually completely legal um and kind of the funny thing is like you can buy the spores, you can buy all the equipment legally and then to actually grow it is illegal. So like the federal government's just fucking up. But um, 
that's probably the biggest barrier because it is seeing more and more adoption. It's seeing more and more kind of mainstream popularity, right? We've got Aaron Rodgers talking about ayahuasca. Like it's, it's in the mainstream culture. It's in the mainstream mindset now more and more. The only thing that's lagging, honestly, is the legality. And even that's starting to change and it will continue to change over the next decade. I believe it's legal now in like Denver, right? Yeah, Denver, it's totally mm -hmm. legal. Certain areas have decriminalized. Actually, I think Washington State, it might be decriminalized, but not mm -hmm. fully like legal yet. Um, you guys would probably know more about those finer, finer points of the legal system than me. I just hope I don't get sued mostly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know after this this podcast like, I need David's contact information <laughs> never listen to you guys' podcast again this guy ruined my life <laughs> but yeah so, so hey but David hey man I just want yeah. to thank you so much for, for coming on the show today this was a phenomenal conversation I to before this I knew very little about plant-based medicine about DMT uh, ayahuasca all that stuff and i feel like you really broke it down to a point to where uh someone as dumb as me can understand the benefits of it and what exactly not exactly it is but get a, a very good understanding of what's going on with it and whatnot so thank you for that for not breaking it down to like a andrew hubbard you know hubbard <laughs> like level yeah. of like <laughs> but uh, very very consumable so if people want to follow you and uh see see your stuff and and talk to you where can they do that at yeah, probably a uh, best place would be Instagram, just David Z BJJ. Keep it simple. Um, I've got my podcast. If people want to explore more of these topics, I've got a bunch of episodes I recorded with my wife, kind of diving deeper into microdosing, into ayahuasca, all these kinds of topics. So that'd probably be the best place to go learn about it some more. Perfect, John. You got anything else? No, man. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, that was that was the whole great conversation. Let us know what you guys think at home about it, and uh, let us know if you guys end up doing any of this stuff. So, but <laughs> hey, uh, thank you guys so much for listening and watching at home. And remember, no oil checks here. Was... All right, guys. <laughs> Peace. Thank you, guys. <laughs>